How might educators overcome our own typically non-existent Indigenous education to teach about First Peoples in a way that is responsible, ethical, and based in action? I'm your host, Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. Dr. Angela Nardozzi describes herself as a guest on Turtle Island, and she's also an educator, a coach, and a doctor of philosophy. She primarily works with settler educators to help them better teach about Indigenous histories and current communities. In this conversation, Dr. Nardozzi blows open for me the concept of truth and reconciliation, what it means to be an effective ally, and how we might move towards action to create a more hopeful future. If you were a settler on this land we call Canada, if you are at times feeling worried about not getting it right or struggle with wanting to know what you are doing in the classroom on Indigenous issues is okay, you need to listen to this show. Dr. Nardozzi's relatable, passionate, and infectious energy will captivate and inspire you. And while we get into some pretty heavy stuff with this conversation, I hope that you will finish this episode feeling a little more motivated to explore some of these ideas with your students. Okay, let's do it. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Angela Nardozzi. Um, Let's just start by you telling everyone who you are, where you're from, and what you do. I am a guest and a settler on Turtle Island. My family um, immigrated from Italy, and I was born in Markham, Ontario. And um, I currently live in Toronto the traditional territory of the Mississaugas, the Patoon Nation, the Seneca um, as well. And I, what do I do? I do a bunch of things. (laughs) My favorite thing to do is um, have a bunch of things on the go. So Mm. I teach teachers, uh, candidates, teacher candidates at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. I am also a trained coach, and so I do uh, a lot of coaching of um, mostly settlers, other settlers who are working uh, in Indigenous education, who are navigating their position and privilege, uh, and or are working in First Nation communities. I also um, consult with different uh, education um, yeah, teams, different schools, and finally, uh, I also coordinate, doing like a lot of co's, coaching, consults, coordinate um, a webinar series, the Gikinuamagawin webinar series with Dr. John Paul Rastoul of the Dokis First Nation. And he is currently the chair of Indigenous Education at University of Victoria. Um, yeah, and I love all these things because they are part of my passion, which is, first of all, educating, but um, I I don't know, like, I don't know how to state it other than standing in solidarity as much as I can with Indigenous, Indigenous folks. Um, Yeah, so that's what, that's what I do. And I'm a mom, it's crazy. (laughs) Oh, and I'm a mom on top of all these other things. You have it's a new thing. So it's just it's coming, yeah, it's coming together now. It's it's nuts. Six months in. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I remember reading a newsletter a few months ago and you were talking about a three-month-old. So that's a fairly new addition to your resume, a yeah. big part of it too. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's a wonderful, wholesome way of thinking about all the things that you do. And I just noticed even how you're talking and how you use the word settler. Like, I don't think I hear a lot of white people describe themselves in that way. And even just your awareness of that in that term, um, just for me highlights how much of a different approach you take to this work. So I found you from one of my colleagues who sent me one of your newsletters and then I started following you through that. And the way that you're writing for, I, I assume mostly settler teachers, but you do such a great job of making these very complex topics very accessible. And there's something about it being written from somebody who, like you said, has Italian heritage, who comes from Markham. Like it feels very relatable things that you're doing, at least for me as you know, a white woman who is a settler in this land. Um, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about what your indigenous education was like when you were growing up as a young child in Markham. Like what did you, what did you know? What did your teachers tell you? Like how was that looking for you as a young child? Oh, that's a really great question. I have two instances of any sort of, I think the term we were using at the time was Aboriginal education as a kid. The first is that I struggled to remember, but last night I was thinking about this. I think it must've been grade seven. We were given a task of making a recreation, a small diorama, if you will, of what different nations, or we weren't even calling them nations at the time, groups of Indigenous people at the time of contact were living in right? Like their structures. And that's all I remember. Um, the second thing that I remember from my education is I was in a social justice club in my Catholic high school. Luke 418. I don't, <laughs> there you are. There's, there's the Bible reference. And uh, there was a social justice week and I was really unmotivated by a lot of what Luke 418 was doing. But when social justice week came up and I saw the different, each day had a theme, I, I remember raising my hand and being like, what about Aboriginal issues? And everyone was like, oh, you know, there was silence, crickets. And so I took it on and I remember getting in contact with a nation. And last night I was Googling, which nation was this? Like, where's my old Hotmail account? What's the password? Anyway, don't remember. It was out in BC and there was a land dispute at the time. And I got in contact with one of the lead people on the ground who were fighting for their, their rights, their land rights. And they were responsive to me, sending me all these articles and I put my poster board, you know, and I was thinking about this, like kids today are like starting NGOs, you know, going on the dragon's den. And I'm like, here I am with my poster board in the nineties, you know? Um, so real mover and shaker I was, but um, yeah, those are the only two things I remember from school. This, I'll tell you this though. I have a really strong memory. My aunt and uncle had a cottage up at Lake Simcoe. We were there one weekend and there was a flyer on the table that Casino Rama was opening in the nearby Rama First Nation. And I, I looked at it and I was young. I think I was like grade three or four. And I remember saying to my parents, like, let's go to this powwow. This looks great. And um, there was like a very strong no. We went to the opening of the casino though. That was seemed appropriate to take a, a child. Uh, so we, we went to the we toured the casino, but what was really cool about, at least I got to do that, the, the cool moment there that I remember so vividly was the person from Rama was taking us around and showing us all the visual symbolism around this 
this the casino floor. So like I remember there being a really big dream catcher at the top and I don't, so I always have had this interest, but I think one of the first messages that I had about this work is like, you don't like, this is not, we don't go there. This is not for you. Right. And that was from, that wasn't from indigenous folks, right? That was from this, my, my people. So yeah, those were the three things, but I resonate, I think with a lot of, um, a lot of the teachers I speak to now, a lot of the teacher candidates who, you know, a lot of them who are coming in right after their undergrad. So early twenties they're still saying, I didn't learn very much, mm-hmm. right? Maybe I heard about residential school now, but other than that, like, so I feel like we're still in that place where people did not learn very much. Well, even the fact that you have three memories from the time before now is mm-hmm. actually pretty impressive. I think that would maybe be more than average, to be honest, for a lot of people who grew up in this school system. Of course, based on what I experienced, what you experienced growing up, that there is uh, so much fear and la- a lack of confidence mm-hmm. in terms of educators now. Like really we are the first generation of educators who are being asked to take up this content in a critical way, right? And we're being um, you know, told that truth and reconciliation time, go in your classrooms, we've got the funding, or maybe we don't anymore, but you know, there used to be funding. Um, let's do this. And so of course people are scared because we don't have, not only do we not learn anything which is accurate, I would say, or critical, most of us, a lot of us were, were steeped in stereotypes and racism. Mm -hmm. And, um, I know I carry a lot of stereotypes in me about indigenous people that I'm constantly undoing and challenging and finding pop up. And so I know that there is, a, yeah, that's the big thing that I hear. How can we do this work? Where's the stuff? Where's the curriculum? And not only are we the first generation being asked to teach it, we're being asked to innovate because no one's handing us this one perfect curriculum saying like, here it is, teach it. This is what, because there isn't, mm-hmm. right? Because, because not to get off on too much of a tangent, but like, I, this is really where our education system which is based in sort of like a Western way of thinking is butting heads against indigenous ways of knowing they are so local. There's no dogmatic. This is what this is. They are, you know, they come from the land. They, they're dependent on nation. And so we really have to get comfortable with uncertainty hmm. and not just uncertainty, but with like, with no right answer, one answer. Especially in this new paradigm where we really truly don't know anything. It's not like we have to pretend like we don't know anything when students are investigating about a concept we actually know a lot about. We don't know. We truly don't know. And we know a lot of the wrong things. Mm -hmm. We know a lot of the wrong things. Like, like I'm sure, even though I don't remember it, I'm sure somewhere, someone at one point asked me to make a totem pole out of a toilet paper roll, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I found myself doing right out of teacher's college was recreating what I had learned. Even though I had all these really cool things that I just learned in my B.Ed. program, when I was nervous the night before a big lesson, I was like, okay, wait, how did my teacher do it? Mm -hmm. We don't have that to call upon. And if we do, it's often super inaccurate, super racist and highly inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, this is scary stuff. And I'm here to say, we need to do it. And we're do- and people are doing it. There's so much exciting work going on out there. 
it's okay that people are scared and there's a way through it. And when we do do the work, it is super powerful and life-changing. I love your passion and I love how positive and hopeful you are. Like that just honestly gives me so much to rely on as a teacher who has so many questions. So take me back a little bit and tell me how you come to this work as a white woman with Italian heritage. Where does that passion begin? So for me, after I finished my B.Ed., I was approached from by a friend who had just done um, worked with the Aboriginal Summer Literacy Program at uh, Frontier College, and he thought that this was something that I should do. And at first, I didn't really understand. Like, I was really critical of um, opportunities where you go somewhere else to quote unquote help people. Right? I was already sort of aware of power dynamic and this concept of privilege. Um, and I applied, but when I didn't get it at first, I had a really strong gut feeling that I wanted to go. And so I was waitlisted. And when I was accepted, I realized I, yeah, so I did go and it was in a treaty three. I ended up in a treaty three first nation. And that summer I think is what really sparked things for me and made me feel like, um, I had the relationships which compelled me to do this work. So at first I was in that community um, and I developed really strong friendships and I felt that one summer wasn't enough. When I heard from that community that there was enough people who were coming and leaving and never coming back and felt no accountability, right? And in reality, I was taking away more than I was giving in the sense that this was a really strong line on my resume right? Look at me with the, this experience in a First Nation community, right? Wow. I could leverage that. So I remember being asked by some, uh, somebody at Frontier College the day we got back from that first summer, you know, what's next for you? And out of my mouth came, I'm changing my master's program because I was enrolled to do a master's. And uh, still, I'm going to say that that was very, um, hmm, that was very sort of uh, presumptuous of me. So I realized I'm like, okay, I should probably ask them if they want me back. So they, they had said to me, oh, come back and teach. But I was, I was really committed to doing further education. And thankfully, um, yeah, the education officer in that particular nation and their chief and council um, did agree to have me back. Uh, we worked out a project and I interviewed youth there about their post-secondary aspirations. And so, and then I did a second summer with Frontier College. At the end of that whole journey, it was like two years just with that community. I realized that they had taught me to be a better Italian Canadian woman, I guess. And what I mean by that is like, I grew up really, really um, torn between this person who like loves spending time with her nano and nana and um, spending time with family. And, you know, we like, we do weird things like making, making tomato sauce every August and like, I really cared as a young person. It felt weird to really care about those things and spending time with older people and all these things. And so being in that nation, it taught me that that was okay to be part of who I was. And I saw other people valuing those things. And so, yeah, it made me a better person. And I realized that at the end of the two years, I needed to, first of all, I needed to honor those relationships in my life. So I needed to come back to Markham and eventually Toronto to be closer to my grandparents. Um, and my family, and I needed to work with my own community. And I feel really lucky 
that at the end of that, I turned to Indigenous people in my community in Toronto and I said, what's next for me? Mm-hmm. And um, that's when they sort of uh, mentored me into roles of the work that I'm now doing. So that's how I got to where I am. And so I think it's in full, um, I'm fully gr- grateful to the people in that original nation that I worked with who I'm still really good friends with. And I am really grateful to them for their ongoing support of my work and uh, of my coming back to my family and uh, for the, to the people in Toronto who have, like I said, mentored me and supported me in this work. It sounds really full circle too. Like you went away to come back to be even more fully you, to be even more fully who you are meant to be, which is quite a beautiful, it's actually really quite profound. Like hopefully anybody who goes away and works with any other community can really see how that can enrich themselves in their own context. Like I think that's the ideal of what you just described. And it's something that I'm constantly negotiating in the sense that I do feel still that I have a very strong connection to that community and yeah I'm just always thinking about am I doing right by them because I really I realize that at the end of the day they don't need me like you should see how amazing that community is doing like the people my age in that community who I'm friends with 10-15 years ago were sort of just beginning on their own healing journey and are now like bringing traditional uh, healing methodologies to that community they are healing themselves. They are back at their ceremonies. Like it's amazing. They didn't need me. Do you know what I mean? Like at all. So I didn't like, I don't know. It's just really cool. And it's an honor to sort of witness their journey. It's really awesome. I'm curious though, because you are an outsider in this community. You're a guest. I don't know like what other language you use yourself, but I'm curious about the feedback you've received from members of the indigenous communities that you're part of about the work that you're doing. Like what have people said? How have they you know, pushed you to be even better in the work that you're doing? So that's a really great question. And I think that resonates, that question resonates with me because I think so many teachers ask that question, like, how do I know that I'm doing a good job? And I think a lot of people, the teachers that I work with, they express to me, like when we really get down to it, they say to me that they're, they kind of want confirmation or like a stamp of approval from an indigenous, some indigenous something person or council or something that like what I'm doing is okay. Yeah. They don't want to get it wrong because they they know probably how high the stakes are. It is for, for, this is how people are thinking. Um, and I felt that too. I've, and I continue, there are days when I really question, like, am I supposed to be doing this work? Am I wanted? Am I needed in this work? I can't say that, like, I don't want to speak for the, the Indigenous folks that I'm accountable to and I'm in a relationship with. I'll tell you that my process is that um, whenever I can, I work in relationship with Indigenous folks. And when I know I'm on the right track is when people are willing to partner with me, that people accept my invitations, that people invite me um, to speak or to, to work with them. And I'm really grateful uh, to mentors like Dr. John Paul Rastoul, Dr. John Doran, who's Mi'kmaq, uh, Dr. Jennifer Wemogwans, like um, other, and I mentioned them because they're public figures uh, in the sense that they work at universities, but also like people um, in my community in Toronto, um, pe- like I said, people back in Treaty 3. So the fact that they're willing to stay in relationship with me. There have been um, moments when 
no one's ever said to me like, you shouldn't do X, Y, Z. But there have been moments where I've sort of picked up on, hmm, this isn't a space that I should be in, right? Mm-hmm. Or like there, <clears throat> like when? Okay, that's a good question. Like, I think, you know, like if there are, there, there are meetings um, where in the community where it like things say, these, this is a, a space for indigenous people. I don't show up and like, I love indigenous people too, guys. Yay, it's Angela. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, like I, I respect those boundaries. Um, and I'm lucky, I think, to have open relationships with people where I say, you know, I've been asked to do this. It's feeling a little bit iffy. Would you like to take this on or can we take this on together? Right? Um, and people have said to me, like, you know what, Angela, I don't know if this is the right place for you. Mm-hmm. So I so I think it's the, that open dialogue and people I trust. And I walk a very fine line because I also don't want to burden Indigenous folks around me. Like, should I do this? What do you think? Right? No. Like, most of the time in my life, um, I do things based on checking with my own gut and... Um, and I'm accountable to myself and to, and to those relationships. So I don't think I'm being very concrete with you. Um, and I understand that, but I, I don't know how else to put it other than it's not for indigenous people to give us a rubber stamp of approval. All mm-hmm. the time, right. We have to put ourselves out there and uh, be vulnerable with what we've learned. And then also be willing to listen when someone says, you know what, maybe you overstepped and I'm going to ask you to sit down right now. Um, and let's hear from other voices. And, and, and I don't, if that happens, I don't take it personally. I'm like, yes, absolutely. Thank you. Sit down. Don't try and explain myself. Don't try and make excuses. Like, yes, you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a good response. And what I'm thinking of when you're saying that is just how to be an ally for any community. Like if you, for example, want to stand up for LGBTQ people, like I am a member of that community, but if somebody else were to want to take a stand for that, they don't have to get my approval for it. They don't have to have somebody telling them what to do. You're guided by your own ethics, your own understanding of what is right, and the willingness of other people who are part of that community to want to still work with you. Like, I think that's a really important reminder from anybody who is not part of a group wanting to be an ally for other folks. And I think it also puts responsibility on me to like do my homework and research, Mm -hmm. right? Before I go knocking on the doors of all my very busy colleagues and acquaintances and friends, I need to be doing my own reading and thinking and checking in um, so that I'm avoiding overburdening them. Yeah, and that's an important that's an important piece to the puzzle, I think, like not needing to ask every single time is what you're doing okay, because you're right, it is not somebody else's job to give you the permission slip to do the work that you're doing. And I think that maybe more people could step into ally roles if they knew that, you know, do your, do your research, do your learning, take some risks and be willing when somebody tells you actually you've overstepped to just take it and accept it. Like you don't have to be getting it right in order to do it. So for teachers listening, what are some concrete examples you can think of, of what they can do to help push forward the ideas of truth and reconciliation in their practices? All right. So this is a complex one because, <laughs> you know, like this idea of reconciliation is so fraught. Um, Dr. Jeff Corntassel, who is a Cherokee 
talks about this idea of like reconciliations really grounded in a Judeo-Christian way of thinking, hmm. right? It doesn't come from uh, indigenous nations is his argument. Um, instead, he says that, you know, his nation thinks about rights and responsibilities, right? Like what are, who am I responsible to? Um, okay. So also there have been many instances in the last few years since the TRC ended where, you know, Canada, especially with the election of Justin Trudeau has been talking about nation to nation and reconciliation, you know, having an, a new minister of indigenous services, etc. But then things will happen where reconciliation, you know, people, for instance, many uh, indigenous uh, thought leaders, I guess you could call them, or people in the public, um, or maybe just active on Twitter, uh, will say, reconciliation is dead. What, what, that reconciliation never even started. How can we even think about reconciliation? So it, a big example is when um, a young man, um, I forget which nation he was a part of, First Nations man, Colton Bushi, was killed by Gerald Stanley. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was murdered. And there was no justice for that family and the way they were treated by the um, judicial system, by the media, like, you know, people were calling it the Colton Bushi trial. Like that, that was the victim. The child was not, he was not on trial. Mm-hmm. Right. Anywho, people, a lot of people, when that verdict came out, were like, where for art thou reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we see, we see sort of struggles around land rights um, across Canada, what we now call Canada and the RCMP being called in to, you know, put forth on protesters and again people saying like where is reconciliation like what reconciliation hmm. and so I think we have to be critical of that idea where I don't I think we're not at a place where um people feel like who like what what does it mean who's reconciling with who who's supposed like who's supposed to reconcile is it about forgiveness are indigenous people supposed to forgive us like we, we actually haven't had a, a concrete conversation like nobody has defined what this means and so I think for me what I encourage teachers to do is to really focus on the idea of truth Mm -hmm. and um from there can come action but uh this idea that we're reconciling like I'm just I'm kind of just pushing it to the side you've actually used a different term in one of your newsletters that I read you said reconciliation like the idea of like moving towards something yeah, that's amazing. So, okay. And I'll give you concrete examples. Those are coming. I know I'm a teacher too. I love a good concrete example. I've got like three. Um, bear with me here. So reconciliation, that comes from Joanne Robertson, who's going to be on a webinar that we're fil- um, recording this next week. She's an Anishinaabe woman. She worked a lot with Nokomis Josephine Mandamon um, around the water walks and wrote and illustrated the book, The Water Walker. And she is explaining to me how she's thinking about this idea of, yes, what is the action piece? And so let me tell you some awesome pieces that people are doing to take action. First of all, teachers can go to the calls to action that was published by the TRC, read them with their students, pick one, take it up, right? Beautiful. Two, um, uh, Josephine Mandamon, um, before she passed away, um, knew about a project began by a teacher in Thunder Bay, Peter Cameron, called the Junior Water Walkers. And they are taking up um, 
Josephine Mandamon's work. And if you don't know about her, she walked around all the Great Lakes and did many other impressive water walks from different corners of Turtle Island to raise awareness about the water and to do ceremony for the water. And so there are cla- there's 199 at last count classrooms across Canada who are a part of this program. They're looking to reach 500. You can learn more about it. You can Google junior water walkers. You can be part of it. I know another teacher, Larissa Cam- um, Gorecki. My apologies, Larissa Gorecki. Uh, she works in the Toronto Catholic Board um, at uh, a high school. And she has started a program from the ground up. Uh, she started, you know, trying reading to read literature with uh, youth um, in her English class, and things weren't really resonating. Three years later, she's got an entire program built up. They just did an exchange facilitated by the YMCA with Thunder Child First Nation. We recorded a webinar about her experience, and that was amazing because it wasn't exploitative. Um, it was all about her students going to that community, that community coming to Toronto and learning from one another. And it sounded transformative. So that's a big one, but you can listen to her webinar to hear about the other like, work that she does in the classroom, right? To bring in indigenous artists, um, really honor their work. And I think what's beautiful about her work and about a lot of the other educators I work with is that they don't start with an idea and then look for indigenous approval right? Like I get emails all the time from schools like, hey, listen, I really want to make a mask with my school. Is that okay? Um, And do you know an Indigenous person who can okay that? Okay, hold on, right? No, like Larissa starts with relationship. Let me give you another example of truth and action, right? Not truth and reconciliation, truth and action. Last year, um, uh, Charlie Angus, who is an MVP member of parliament, uh, was bringing attention Um, and amplifying the voices of young people in Saskatchewan First Nation because they were in a horrible school that was falling apart and moldy and all these bad things. And um, we, uh, they were getting some media. We put the word out there via the newsletter. And I know teachers who emailed me personally the letters, and I posted some in my newsletter as well, of their students writing these brilliant things to the prime minister, like, like, what are you doing? Why do you care about me more than you care about these kids? And like, it was very, it was not wildly reported, we won. They got a school, mm. you know, and I'm not saying we won like, oh, I spearheaded this thing. Like, no, I think Charlie, Angus and those young people in Saskatchewan, they, they, they put the message out there and people across the country put pressure on the prime minister. So there are concrete things that you can do. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Sorry, I spoke very quickly. Those are amazing. And they just so beautifully capture just your energy and your enthusiasm for this work, number one. But number two, just really practical and simple things that people can take on. Like even just going through those calls to action is so realistic for anyone to do, even on Monday, like just to jump right into that. And if people aren't already subscribed to your newsletter, they really should, because it's a wonderful way just to start that education process, because I think a lot of teachers want to start somewhere, but don't know how. So I highly encourage people, I'll put a link in the show notes, to start subscribing, because just to read your writing, like I'm sure people are like, oh my gosh, this woman is so enthusiastic, so excited, like that comes through so well in your writing as well. Um, One of your recent newsletters, though, talked about uh, this idea of cultural appropriation versus cultural appreciation. And there's a very fine line. And I think a lot of people are kind of getting called out on things like wearing headdresses to Coachella and like those kinds of really 
seemingly simple things that people have done that all of a sudden we're now like really waking up to and what that actually means. Um, can you help tease apart for people that distinction between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation? Okay, thank you. I love this question. I get this question all the time. And I will tell you that my thinking on this has changed over time and I really owe it to um, Dr. Astool, who I've already mentioned, and more recently as well, Ryan Neepin of the Fox Lake Cree Nation, who is an amazing educator and PhD candidate at OISE, who I feel lucky to work with. Um, people want a yes and no around appreciation. And what I've come to realize through my own experience and through dialogues with both of them and others, uh, in the community is that it's not a black and white situation. There are certain things which are like a no-go, which many, many like indigenous folks have made very clear. So the headdress thing, that is a sacred item. Stay away, stand down, right? Like um, the totem pole situation. Like these are not just pretty pictures that are carved into um, a, like a tree. This is, from my understanding, which is very limited and very um, preliminary, is that these are family stories, these are family symbols that are passed down. I think where we get into a lot of trouble as non-Indigenous people is that we really take the sacred and uh, divide that from the secular. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of traditional indigenous items and i don't mean indigenous items in the past like even things today that that separation isn't necessarily there okay so uh what does this mean for the classroom appreciation versus appropriation first of all it means i'll tell you i'll tell you about me okay i have been gifted uh medicines like sage from uh indigenous friends uh, i have been in smudge uh, ceremony many times. I've even been asked as a co-presenter to bring uh, the smudge around to people. I, when I'm by myself, I will not smudge with people. I will not invite them into a smudge um, because I know as a non-Indigenous person doing this work, I'm setting an example and I'm very, I don't have those teachings. I don't have those teachings and it's not mine to, to bring around. I, I'm not saying that medicines are not for non-Indigenous people. That's not my call to make, but that's the line that I'm comfortable with. And so what I'm inviting people in there is to really think about what is your relationship with a particular thing or, um, and, and where does that come from and what do you know about it? So like some people may say to me, but I, I want to bring a drum into my classroom. Okay, so what's your relationship with the drum? What do you know about the drum? How do you know? who, you know, because I, I can't, I don't know the stories of everybody. Like, I don't know that the white person next to me hasn't been, for all intents and purposes, welcomed into a family in a particular nation and grown up with that family and, and been called to the drum. I don't know their story, right? So it's not, a, it's not something that can be divided so cleanly. When it comes to teaching in the classroom, I think the, the thing that people are running into, and this comes back to something I think I mentioned earlier, is that this isn't about dogma, right? Like there's no black and white here. And so where people are coming into conflict is that one person that they've consulted with says one thing, 
And then somebody criticizes what they're doing based on what another indigenous person has said to them somewhere else. So this gets very complicated. And so that's why it's important to be in relationship and um, to be accountable to somebody. Let me give you a very concrete example. We had an amazing webinar with um, Becky Greenhow, and this is for free. You can view it on my website, angelnardozi.com, at the webinars tab. And she talked about being part of the Salish Weave Project, where Salish artists, Coast, I believe they're Coast Salish, and I might be wrong on this, but I'm going I'm to refer to them as Coast Salish artists, have gifted this project art. They have given very clear instruction what kids at different ages can do, who are not Indigenous mostly, can do with their art right? Becky has been done so much work with them, is very comfortable with what she's doing because she knows who she's accountable to, these particular Coast Salish artists. I still got feedback from one, only one or two particular people saying, this is unacceptable, how, you know, and very critical. And, you know, this was very clearly appropriation based on what they've learned. What they're then doing is not asking questions about where she, who she's accountable to, and really disempowering those particular Indigenous artists, hmm. right? Like, so I think a lot of times when white folks or non-Indigenous folks police other non-Indigenous folks, we need to be very careful in asking those more questions because really we might actually be policing other like Indigenous people right? Yeah. There's not one thing. Like there's not one. And I think I've learned to be very critical too of anybody who says to speak, they speak for an entire group. That's very, very troubling. And it's a very Western thing that we look for one leader, right? Usually a dude. Mm -hmm. Or to have that idea that like all indigenous perspectives could be summed up with one simple statement, like what you were saying before, how everything is very localized and like mm -hmm. that, that there's different ideas in different communities. It's not possible to say this is okay or this is not okay because you're right. It's really about the relationships that you have and who you're personally accountable to. That's a really insightful thing to share. Thank you. I hope it makes sense. I know it's very uncomfortable to think that there's all this gray and that people can make a mistake. Um, but for me, I can only tell you my process. When I'm in a classroom, I'm about to make a lesson. I always ask myself very simply, would I do this lesson about any other group, religion, uh, ethnic group, if you will, you know, and what I mean by that is, okay, um, I'm going to teach about Catholicism. Today, I'm going to perform with my class a mass. You would never do that. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it's okay to like perform a ceremony? Or like, um, we're going to learn about indigenous nations to do this. I'm going to assign each of the students a clan. Mm -hmm. Would you ever teach about, I don't know, black history and say, I'm going to give each of you a, a last name of a, no, you wouldn't do that. Or, you know, like these are, these are, I think, yeah, these are very clear lines that I um, try not to transgress because I think they de they dehumanize uh, Indigenous folks and they de they they um, trivialize their spiritual practices and the sacred nature of them. So those are the, the that's the guide I kind of use, and I ask questions. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, there's no straightforward answer on this one. This is like a whole thing. We could do a whole podcast just on this. <laughs> one of the things I've learned from Doctor Stool and that comes up every single webinar we do together is this idea that 
we have to do it. We have to do this work. It's okay to make mistakes. It's better to make a mistake than to not do it at all. We cannot afford to have another generation Mm -hmm. of young people who grew up like us and didn't learn anything at all or or learned racist things. We we can't afford that. So I'll change gears a little bit. Uh, You know, it's hard to transition out of that, but again, like just so amazed at how you're able to see things in such a relatable way. And I'm thinking about specifically in one of your newsletters, you're talking about a gift that somebody gives you to your son, which is a little PPTP, which I have received those as well. I did not have uh, the same kind that you got, Um, but someone gave this to you for your son, which is like, FYI, totally useless. Like you can just throw a washcloth over them so they don't pee on you. And plus like, it's fine. Like you're going to get peed on if you're a parent. Totally. But interesting, like you, you added images. So you took a few photos of them and they had some kind of disturbing images and you called them colonial images on like a, just a tiny little triangular piece of fabric. For teachers who aren't as familiar with this kind of teaching, explain the idea of a colonial idea, or what does that mean? And why are colonial ideas so harmful for students, even if nobody in your classroom identifies as Indigenous? Okay, there's so many parts to this question. I'm going to go from the bottom up, I think. So first of all, and I know you're, you're probably aware of this, but I think it bears repeating. Toronto has one of the largest populations. And so I'm in Toronto and I know your listeners are probably everywhere. Um, Yay podcasting, yay the internet. Um, But I'll speak to Toronto. Toronto, we have one of the largest populations of Indigenous folks across what we now call Canada. And it's important to remember that there's no such thing as an Indigenous look. Um, And so, and that uh, young Indigenous people from many different nations some of them still feel very uncomfortable to self-identify to educators, which makes perfect sense, given that we know that educators systemically have lower expectations of uh, Indigenous, um, Black, uh, and other students of color, um, and that um, the you know we have a, a genocidal legacy of in education, right? Of what education has done to Indigenous folks. So that is what I'm going to call you. It, it was genocide. It is genocide. Um, okay, so uh, we don't know who's in front of us. I just wanted to make that very clear. Um, that being said, you know, you questioned about is it is it are these colonial ideas? First of all, what are they and are they harmful to uh, how are they harmful to non-Indigenous students? So I would say that colonial ideas are very hard to identify if you aren't looking for them because we are so used to them as non-Indigenous people. Like we live and breathe colonial ideas. Everything, every, everything is colonial. Like on, in, in what we now call Canada in terms of what we recognize as Western society, I would say. And that's a very probably factually incorrect statement. It's a very generalized statement, but like to make a point, everything is, right? From uh, our economic system to the days of the week, the calendar we follow. Um, the way we, 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 we rest, the way that we work, all of it. And so, you know, some of the more obvious ones when we talk about Indigenous education are ideas around, like stereotypes around um, pan-Indigenization, the idea that all Indigenous people are the same. And like, if you look at this, this uh, PPTP, ridiculous, um, that we even call it that, but you're right. And I've been peed on so many times. Um, <laughs> Peeing on is the least of our worries. Right, that's what I'm saying, right? Like, please. Um, but this idea that, um, you know, there was like a teepee on it and an arrow and like, 
you know, a sexualized, seemingly indigenous woman in uh, some sort of tan hide, you know, like this, with a head with a headband on, you know, like these this pan indigenization idea or another colonial idea is that like to be truly indigenous, you need to do X, Y, and Z, and or you could not have changed at all since contact, which is ridiculous. Like we don't, there's no like validity test for me as an Italian Canadian woman. You know what I mean? Like no one's checking to see like if I make pasta every week, which you know, on the good days, but yeah, not since the the kid's been born. That's real. Um, so. So we're, we're, we're steeped in these ideas, right? Um, I'm trying to see if I wrote down some examples. Um, even the idea of like sexualization of indigenous women, right? Like, which has, as I made in uh, the point I made in the uh, newsletter is like, this is a, an idea um, that has led to directly to um, the disproportionate number of missing and murdered indigenous mm-hmm. women, mm-hmm. Um, you know, because we're the, for us as like, in our society, we, we see their lives as expendable, right? Based on what activities we perceive them to be participating in. Anyway, so these are the ideas. And the idea, so, and among others, and the question you asked is like, how are they harmful to our non-Indigenous students? Okay, they're actually not harmful. They're beneficial, mm. right? My child directly benefits, as an Italian, Portuguese, Canadian, whatever he is, kid, directly benefits from colonialism right? We get to live on this land, which, you know, is under treaty. So it was agreed to share this land, but we benefit from the subjugation of Indigenous people every day in so many ways. And so, um, yeah, in the short term, it's beneficial for us. It, it reinstates our power. It reinscribes our privilege on this land. Um, I benefit from Indigenous people's resources being taken, um, and the list goes on. The long, in the long term, that I think, and we're seeing its effects now, that is where we are all suffering. Mm. Because um, we brought capitalism as colonizers to North America. That's not going very well for us, right? So purely on a very, like, if you even want to look at this very selfishly, right, as non-Indigenous people, like, we don't have a lot of time left to mm-hmm. smarten up and listen to Indigenous people in terms of relationship to land, because they existed pretty well here for tens of thousands of years. And, you know, that, that global clock is ticking. So that's number one. But I think from a humane level, like if you're a person who's committed to justice, then I think that we can look beyond our own power and privilege that we accrue from the subjugation and the colonization and the genocide being wrought on Indigenous people. And then we can say, all right, what is our commitment to justice? And to what extent that we allow it to happen to other people? What is our commitment to stand up for um, what is right? And yeah, so that's a long answer to a really strong question with my son and kids in general I think that they have a lot of this is the the earth that they're inheriting right there's a lot to uh I'm trailing off because I'm just overwhelmed with the my concern about their future Mm -hmm. and what really scares me and what really frustrates me is the answer is really turning to indigenous people and letting them lead the way. And I don't know if we are brave enough to do that.
Yeah, it's a really sobering thought. And I know when I became a parent, I really started thinking about this in a really different way, how we're not, the way that we have been doing things is not working for us. And we really have to change gears pretty dramatically in order to survive if we want to survive. Thank you. It was a really, really good answer. It gives a lot to think about. What gives you hope today? I mean, you have a new child. There's something really tremendously hopeful about bringing new life into the world. So what gives you hope? You say as I hear him crying in the other room because the babysitters are trying to put him to sleep. That's great. Uh, um, What gives me hope? Um, What gives me hope is when I look at my friends in that community that I've been talking about and I see the healing that they're doing Mm. and I see yeah young indigenous folks making their art and um not giving a not giving a fuck um and just doing their thing and when i see young people marching for the climate and putting indigenous leaders in out first and when i see young people taking to this work in a non-cynical way and I, i i do see teachers doing really amazing work out there like amazing, amazing, amazing work. And the kids, those letters, like if you go and you look on my website, I, I must have, I think I did a blog post on it. Yes, I did. Um, and you look back about the letters that the young people from Toronto wrote to the prime minister about the school in Saskatchewan. That, that's where the hope is. If you read the content of those letters, like, and you speak to that teacher and realize like these weren't dictated letters, like they were coming up with these, these things themselves. It was, it's amazing. That's where the hope is. And I hate that. I hate that we have to look to children for hope. They should be enjoying their friggin' childhoods. Mm. But, 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 you know, I don't know. Capitalism hasn't taken them yet. But I, but it's not just children. I look at educators. Educators are, are hopeful. You know, educators in this province right now are, are striking soon. On Wednesday, it's coming up the high school teachers. For, and they are hopeful, right? They're hopeful. They're fighting for public education. We are, we are, there, that's where I find Thank you. So with that, we're going to transition to our final little moment on our show. We do a thing called Ticket Out the Door, and it's just a bunch of random questions, and you can't prepare for them. We try to do them rapid fire style, um, just a way for everyone to understand you better, what makes you tick, and get every little last drop of learning out of this show. So you ready? Let's do it. Okay. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Ooh, look at my baby. <laughs> Let me check my phone, but I'm like, no, yes, at least I look at my baby first. Good, thank you. What is the last thing you do at the end of the day? Uh, look at my baby. Hmm. What would be your last meal on earth? Oh, 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 yes. Okay, I'm thinking, I'm going to do like an Anthony from Queer Eye Answer, where it's like a 20-minute answer. It's like, there's like <laughs> pasta involved. There's like a carbonara. No, wait, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm eating this pasta it, it has a particular it's called straw and hay pasta or straw and wheat it's two different colors it has a beautiful creamy mushroom sauce yes and then there's gelato basically i'm just gonna eat in italy <laughs> that is the best answer i've ever gotten to that question well i'm italian so it's perfect what is your favorite book to read to your son right now oh the only book that we read um it's um the the hippo book the belly button book with the hippos by sandra boyden and it's like, he just loves that book. It's about hippos with belly buttons. They love their boots. 
What's your favorite movie? Oh, yes. Mm, yes. To all the boys I've loved before. It's on Netflix. So it stars, uh, you know, I've read the books and oh my God, do you know when I was pregnant? I think I watched that 40, like 50 times. Like I was just like, oh, did I watch it three times today? That's not enough. Like I was so calm. Yes. And I cannot wait. The two sequels are coming out in 2020. The world has to last until then. Yes. twenty. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Jenny Han is like just so good. I love, love that you said that. <laughs> um, what is the best gift you've ever received from somebody? Oh God. The best gift I've ever received. My wedding ring from my husband. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> I usually ask that like, what's the best gift you've ever received from a student? But I think that's like the that's best. That's my Drake poster. Sorry, not yeah. my Drake poster. It's an oil painting. It's That's the one you saw. Yeah. I, I quote Drake all the time. And, oh, cool. Uh, it's got some sketchy politics, but whatever. Anyway, they, they like painted this Drake four foot reproduction of this uh, picture that he has of himself in his house. So I also have one. So there oh, that's really rad. That's amazing. Finally, what do you think is the future of learning? The future of learning? Oh, baby. The future <laughs> of learning is relationship. It's, that's what, that is, yeah. Re, that's what we're moving towards. That's what I'm seeing in this like co-regulation this idea like all of it like group learning communities teachers learning together it's all that's what it is it's all relationship that's where the real learning is for me that's where i see the future that's perfect thank you so much for taking time away from your day to talk and i've honestly just learned so much like it's actually such a privilege and a delight to get to have you for an hour because I got to ask whatever question I wanted and honestly, like my mind was blown at least like three distinct times. So thank you. It's very sweet. I, I've been so much appreciated. It was an honor to be asked. Um, I love podcasts and thank you for allowing me to talk about to all the boys I loved before, which is like so great. I love that. <laughs> Go watch it people. But yeah, so, so good. Okay, yes to the shout out for Jenny Hans to all the boys I've loved before. But before you queue that up on Netflix, do yourself and your students a favor by subscribing to Dr. Nardozzi's newsletter and explore some of her webinars on her website. Links to all of these, as well as many, many things mentioned in the show can be found in the show notes for this episode. I am so grateful for Dr. Nardozzi's perspective, sharp wisdom, and for me, fresh take on these topics. Please send this episode to someone that you know that might benefit from learning more about Angela and the work that she does. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Keep putting relationships first. And remember, we are teaching tomorrow.